Live from New York City, this is Yitzi Tovel, Building Jerusalem. Our guest today is Rabbi Manus Friedman. Rabbi Friedman is a rabbi, author, lecturer, the dean of the Beis Chana Institute of Jewish Studies, and the Chabad Shleach of Minnesota for over 50 years. Rabbi Friedman, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for inviting me. You um, sprang into fame in the Jewish world uh, in 1990 with your uh, first big book, uh, Why Doesn't Anyone Blush Anymore? And that that came as a sort of um, very strong response, it seems, to a, to a perspective that you thought was all wrong. And what, was, what were you responding to with that book originally? Doesn't Anyone Blush Anymore means what happened to our sensitivity? Why are we so insensitive to things which shows a callousness where, where, where there shouldn't be. So relationships were suffering, you know, from doing marriage counseling and talking to people about, about their relationships, it was obvious that there's an insensitivity that's, that's deadly. And it resulted in nastiness. People married couples accusing each other of all sorts of horrendous things and then expect to live together again. So I realized there are limits to what marriage counseling can do and that the right way to do marriage counseling is to talk to husband and wife separately so mm-hmm. that they can't insult each other in front of you because <laughs> that's so insensitive. What, that they're, that they're talking to each other in, and, and against each other in front of the third party? Yeah, but how is that going to help? Right. That's interesting, because the, um, the format itself seems to invite performative conflict. Yes. Huh. Wow. And of course, they try to outdo each other, so they come up with accusations they never mention to each other in private. Right. And, and they go home and say, where did that come from? Now you're making up stuff. It's terrible. Anyway, so <clears throat> the blushing is, is, is a uniquely human uh, response. It shows, you know, if a mensch is a mensch, there are things that are, that are embarrassing and you blush. People don't blush anymore. That's really interesting. Unless you ask them how much money they make. Then they get, oh, 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 that's private. Right. Isn't that amazing? That's offensive. That's the one thing left. Yeah. Now you've overstepped your border. <clears throat> you can't ask me that. Right. But I can ask you how your love life is. I can ask you what you think of your wife, your husband. Don't ask me how much I get paid. It's none of your business. It's strange. Where, where do you think that comes from? Materialism. Life is so much about things and not about people. 
So it's depersonalized, it's a little vulgarized, it's pornography, right? Objects, not people. We can go on and on about it, but like in the hospital, mm-hmm. the doctor will ask the nurse, which room is the pneumonia in? Or whatever, the disease. Sure. It's not a person, it's a case. It's a case. I, I, I hear this um, commodification creeping in everywhere. I, I remember one of the really jarring moments for me was um, I was away in Jerusalem for a couple of years and I came back to Australia and the announcements on the trains had ceased advising passengers what to do and it started advising customers what to do. I, and that, that really... Um, upset me at a really deep level and I, I, I think the the fact that there's a um that there's a dollar value on the people that were providing the public service of moving around um really uh struck something deep for me psychologically also the schizophrenic the bipolar the personality oh, disorder people are defined by the, yeah. the right the one thing that deviates them from uh, yeah. psychological normativity. So this is this is a that's a new phenomenon, though. I mean, I oh, that's that was back in nineteen ninety one. Right. You be, uh, your 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 um, position at the time, like the 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 case that you were making, was um, one of of radically rethinking person one's personal attitude. Actually, I spoke about modesty and this issue, blushing, in San Francisco. Okay. In a suburb of San Francisco, actually. And I didn't know that in the audience was a uh, vice president of a publishing house of Harper, San Francisco. And um, he came over to me afterwards and he said, if you can speak about modesty, in the hot tub capital of the United States, you, you should write a book. Right. And that's how it happened. So, so it so. was interesting that in, in the most liberal, the least blushing place, <laughs> the subject was, was welcome, had a, a warm response. The lack of blushing or the lack of modesty. Mm. Uh, people intuitively feel there's something missing. So let, let's 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 narrow in on this idea of modesty, as you expressed in the, in this book originally. It was something. Was that something that people should have? F- in your view, is is modesty a, a state of action or a state of mind? And is it for outsiders or for people that you live with? What's it like? It's a very good done? question. It's a very good question because people assume that modesty is for the streets. Mm. Like every father says to his daughter, you can't go out, out dressed, dressed like, like that. that. And we should reverse that. No, 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 no. If you're going to dress like that, go out. Not in our house. Because the house is far more important than the street. And the quality of life in the house should be your priority, your primary concern. So what, what's inappropriate for the street who cares? Mm. It's just the street. 
It's a bunch of strangers. But what goes on in the house, here you should be really fine-tuned. So modesty must begin at home. And it must begin with the individual. It's not who else is present. It's you. A human being has two dimensions, the inner and the outer. Regardless of whether there's anybody else around. So modesty doesn't mean women should dress modestly because men are present. It has nothing to do with the men. One of the ways we can identify an immodesty is by men's reaction. <laughs> right, but it's, that's just a... Um, <clears throat> what? An indicator. Right, it's a measure rather right. than a... I, I, I'm reminded here of um, a story, I think it's in the Talmud, of a woman who married to have several sons who were high priest. And the, the, um, the virtue is that her, the rafters of her house never saw her uncovered head. Yeah. So, what, so that, that's something that, it, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to listen to, to these words from a, from a bunch of hats. And it, and it seems to me like, from a, let's say, the default cosmopolitan secular perspective of, of, some, of an educated Westerner, the, those words aren't disagreeable as much as they're just completely alien. Yes. Like, there's no framework to even understand them. Right. So let's, let's create a little bit of a framework. Uh, a couple, a married couple, intend to share a life by being intimate. What is intimacy? It would seem at first glance that you can only be intimate once in your life. Because intimate means your private space, your inner private area. Once you invite somebody into that, it's not private anymore. It's been shared. So you can only be intimate once. So intimate is the, what, is the process of transforming the private into the shared. It's a, it's, it seems like. Right. But that, that's terrible. Okay, why is it terrible? And only once? The rest of your life, you're not intimate anymore? Wait, when you say only once, do you mean it seems like only one time or only with one person? One time. Okay, so let me, let me see, get this model right. Um, so someone grows up extremely, um, what, cordoned off from the world internally, and then, uh, let's say, to pick the default thing, there's, the, um, there's marriage, and there's this, this great unfolding to the marriage partner, and that's it. Like, you've, you've shown all there is to show, and, like, there's, there's nothing more to give in some sense. It's not private anymore. Right. Like, you're a virgin only once. Right. That's terrible. Okay. The magic of a marriage is that you never lose the intimacy. Like if we use the word private. This is my private space. Oh, once somebody comes in there, it's not private anymore. Okay. So imagine somebody invites me to their house. And I think, wow, that's really nice. I'm getting to 
to be close with this person. He's inviting me to his house. I come to his house. All the doors are open. There are no locks on the door. Everybody is coming and going. And all of a sudden, like, this invitation has lost all its meaning. He invites everybody. Mm. So there's no privacy there. There's no intimacy there. His invitation is meaningless. Right? So do you think intimacy sort of necessitates some, some level of exclusivity? Yes. Okay. It's like a person says, I'm going to tell you a secret. I've never told anybody. And then you find out he, told, he tells everybody the same thing. Right? right. Or it really is something he never told anybody. And now he tells you. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's not the secret it used to be anymore. Because now he has told somebody. Interesting. So it seems to me like the, the, there's an intimacy here, something different from um, what sincerity or vulnerability. Like there's a so there's this big there's this big thing now in um, uh, with new media with like the the YouTube stars of the modern day that used to be like on television everything would be polished and everyone would understand that everything's polished that would be fine that would be great because that's that's what that medium is. And then people started learning that, oh, no, real humanity is what, um, is what, what sells, let's say. So like, uh, I think the comedian Carl Cease, um, he has this great piece where he's like, if you, if you put an ad, if you have an ad up with someone's like, come on down to, to Big Joe's retail, you get all the best. And then like, you see, you know, the, the, the takes over and he's frustrated but the camera keeps rolling and he doesn't know it. He's just like yelling at someone about how, oh, I can't do this anymore, it's terrible. That's the bit that's gonna sell. Like that bit at the end, that's because that's him, that's the real person. And so like you get a lot of this now where people are talking into the camera and they're, I mean, to all appearances being sincere and being vulnerable, a lot of people revealing like things about themselves which are, um, what you might, which are like, uh, what near to the soul. But that's not intimacy, that's vulnerability. And you can be vulnerable with millions of people, but you can't be intimate with millions of people. Am I understanding the schematic properly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, the camera does strange things to people. It either brings out your truest self, right. or turns you into an actor. Right. You take on a persona, that, oh, the camera's on. So, I don't know. Look, it's like, at what point does a man have license to a woman's intimacy. If he takes her out four times, does he deserve some intimacy now? I would I would say Okay, I I mean I I don't think there's a I don't think it's like a punch card. Right. I don't think it's like you win your your free coffee at the end. Okay. So what if he puts a ring on her finger now? I think I think what that represents. I, I mean, I'm just you know thinking a lot here. Is is a, a a commitment to try to do it right, but still, like, there's no license there, so far no as license. I can tell. How about after the wedding? Again, no. I mean, I my understanding of the of the Jewish perspective is that he now has an obligation to keep her satisfied, and she has an obligation, but he has no rights. That's very interesting. Right. And this, this, I mean, this stems to, this comes to the heart of like the fundamental distinction between the halakhic mode of being and let's say like the secular enlightened mode of being. 
it's from what perspective do you want to start your entire system? Do you want to start it from how does everyone take care of each other? Do you want to start it from how does everyone not step on anyone else's toes? Yes, but I'm trying to get to a definition okay. of intimacy. If after being married for 10 years, I still have no rights to intimacy, I can't force, I can't demand, I have no rights. Well, that means that what was intimate before we got married is still as intimate, and I still have no rights. I can't buy it, I can't earn it, I can't possess it. It remains forever off limits. It's intimate. So every time, even after 10 years of marriage, if a couple are going to be intimate, they have to pass that border or that and enter into a place where you don't go because that's intimate. Okay. I... So you don't violate each other's privacy. Very simple example. Sure. You invite somebody to your house and you say, make yourself at home. Hmm. <laughs> so they start trimming their nails and he does. around you. And he does. No, you start selling your furniture or something. <laughs> You'll never invite him back. Probably not. Because he violated your privacy. I mean, he, he violated your furniture. <laughs> Even in, in more subtle ways, if he mm. just rearranged the furniture. But that attitude, I can do what I want in somebody else's house. Mm-hmm. You violate the privacy. But if you invite somebody to the house and they're keenly aware that it's your house, that's a welcome guest. He's not diminishing the privacy. He's respecting the privacy. So it remains unviolated. So even though he has the ability to be more at home, his deliberate restraint is, 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 is his way of communicating respect for you. For your stuff. And also, ultimately, um, appreciation. Right. Okay. So, I mean, that part makes sense. The bit that I'm, I'm just a bit not clear on at this point is it seems like we're using intimacy to refer to a couple of different things. Right? One of them is the, um, the sort of, <laughs> what to many is like a, a white whale, like the, the state of being... Uh, sincerely deeply personal with someone which is you know the, I assume the, the quest that we're we're striving for here and the other is the the you know simple most most base and tawdry acts of you know, what physical I don't know how euphemistic you want to be here but you know where I'm getting I mean like anyone who anyone who's um seen a simple sex ed video or as you say in this day and age seen some pornography understands all the relative functional parts but that's not what I mean that's that's uh, we can use intimacy euphemistically to refer to that or we can use it to refer to an actual state of being together both right both there's a big picture and there's the specific but any guy who feels like he's entitled to intimacy do you mean this intimacy or this intimacy either one okay if you feel entitled you're a violator. You're an intruder. You're destroying, or you're acting as if the uh, private is not private and the intimate is not intimate. It's destructive. The magic of marriage is that intimate remains intimate forever, 
You don't, you don't go where your spouse doesn't want you to go. You don't probe areas that are sensitive and she doesn't want to talk about it. You don't go there. You have no rights. Like you say, you have only obligations, no rights. Right. <clears throat> so that, uh, and therefore the, the, what, the, the, the process of marriage over, over decades becomes a process of each party gently placing things on the table and removing them and the other party not interacting with, the, with anything but that which is placed on the table and therefore that dance can go on forever. Is that roughly where you're, where you're it's going? It's a good way to put it. It's, it's protecting each other's privacy, not violating it. Mm. So if, if you don't want to go somewhere emotionally, uh, some subject that you can't handle, your spouse should protect you. Not become your psychiatrist and try to tear your defenses down. Right. Every step is taken voluntarily by the by each party. So this is the, 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 the secret or the Kabbalistic idea of the dance, the to and fro dance of life. You breathe in, you breathe out. You're together, but you're not. See, so even while you're being intimate, you realize, I don't belong here. This is a privilege, not a right. Like the Kayan Gadol going into the Holy of Holies. Mm. He goes there. He doesn't belong there. Mm. And if he starts to feel like he belongs there, he will die. There's a reason they have a, a rope mm. tied to That's his leg right. before he walks in. That's right. Wow. Okay. So the holy remains holy. The intimate remains intimate. The private remains private. And... The innocence remains. This is really interesting to me because the way that you're framing it here um, is, I'm. <clears throat> there's this phenomenon of a, of, um, I, I forget what it's called, naturalization, desensitization, where it's um, so the like the really the, the basic level that people feel it. I think it's the same phenomenon. Is um, we grow up wearing clothes, and so pretty soon you don't notice you're wearing clothes, unless they're particularly tight or particularly itchy. It's just how things are. Your your what your body has learned to stop reporting the fact that you're wearing a shirt and pants all the time. Um, and I think there's this there's a similar thing that goes on where people fall into bed together, and it's strange and exciting and new. But after like a few years of their bodies pressed together, they they don't notice anymore, and. That's there's a sort of presumption that this is how things are, and it might hurt terribly to have that taken away. But at the at the time, it's just the malaise of being. It's how things are, um, and I, I noticed this recently when I was thinking about um, the Jewish laws of family purity, nidda, and so on. That that there's a there's a cyclical nature to it, and specifically that there's a there's a there's a what a ritually and legally enforced separation, which means that every month with the lunar cycle, everything's made new again. And so it's, um, uh, there's no, like, you give it once and then it's, it's there forever. It's a constant taking back and then you get, and again, and taking back and again from both that's, sides. That's that dance. That's that dance. <clears throat> yeah. Um, 
What is the expression? Uh, familiarity breeds contempt. What's the expression? That's a scary thought. How is marriage supposed to work? I mean, who, who gets more familiar with each other than a husband and wife? Right. And if familiarity breeds contempt, we're in trouble. And also, isn't familiarity a positive thing? Shouldn't a couple get really familiar? You know, like an old shoe? Pardon the comparison. <clears throat> well, I mean, there's a, there's a, uh, sticking with the Kabbalah for a moment, there's a, there's a parallel here between a, um, a relationship between a married couple and man's relationship with his God. And there's a, there's, a, there's an injunction, seek my face, right? The, God calls upon us to become familiar with him. Yes, intimate. Intimate. And that's a whole other subject. Our, our description of God does not allow intimacy. He's infinite, he's eternal, he's, he's all-powerful, all-knowing, endless. <laughs> you can't approach this. Mm. How do you get intimate with that? He is, I'm not. Okay, it's over. Right. He's everything, I'm nothing. Bye. Okay. <laughs> you've you've taken this conversation where it can go. You've, you've made him irrelevant. Awesome, but irrelevant. This comes back to something we were talking about before camera, where you said most Jews don't have a Jewish conception of God. Right. Big, big thing to say. Right. I think it's Aristotle's conception of God. The perfect, untouchable, in, invulnerable being. And if he's invulnerable, how am I supposed to be vulnerable to him? Yo. Real talk, that's really intense. Now, wait, I can be dependent on him. Right. I am. But that's not vulnerable. There's no relationship there. Yeah. Fascinating. At, at least vulnerability in the sense of weakness. Yes, mm. that, that we have. But that's not true vulnerability. Real vulnerability comes from strength. Real vulnerability comes from strength. Oh, because you right. So if, if God's already everywhere at all times and has has access to everything in all forms, then like what is there that you have that you could that you could not offer him, but that you therefore willingly do offer him? If he needs nothing, he's irrelevant. Wow. Well, <laughs> there goes the theological substructure of our faith. <laughs> but, that's, but it's interesting you say this, because I remember like, I, I did a philosophy undergrad, and they went, we, we went through, we learned the um, Platonic conception of, of God as, the, as necessary versus contingent being, and the Aristotelian definition of God as prime mover and the whole work, and how the medieval philosophers dealt with that. But the thing that springs to mind is that, um, again, a, a Talmudic reference, that in the... When, what is it, when the temple was destroyed, God left his temple upstairs and he sits in exile with us. And so, like, that's such a different picture from what one might imagine. So you take Aristotle's description of God, and it's all correct. Right. He is eternal, he is all-powerful, all-knowing, etc., 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 and he created the world. 
What does that tell you? He's already perfect. He's already eternal. He's already all-knowing, all-powerful. He created a world. Mm. He shouldn't do that. <laughs> According to Aristotle's description, that's out of character. I, is it out of character, though? Yeah. Like, okay, it's, so, so wait. I remember reading a bit of the, studying a bit of the Kuzari um, many years ago. And one of the things that struck me was, I think, the Neoplatonist. It's, it's like this um, conversational form where, you know, this king has a dream where he's told, follow the true path. And he's like, well, what's the true path? And so he starts having philosophers and religious figures in an audience. And I think the Neoplatonist um, is discussing the creation of the world. And he's like, oh, yeah, like, um, this whole thing is just by accident. Like, it was as insignificant for God to create a world as to not create a world. So, like, here we are, I guess. I mean, but that that attitude in itself seems at odds with a lot of Jewish thought. Also at odds with Aristotle. How if so? he is the perfect being... What do you mean? He frivolously created a world? Oh, true. Like right. By accident? He tripped on it? What happened? Well, I, I don't know. Does the Aristotelian, Aristotelian conception... Like, I think I get where you're going with this, because I, I don't know if the Aristotelian conception necessitates that, he's, that his perfection involves moral goodness, but I think the Platonic conception would. And certainly, like, the sort of Christian theology that stems out of that, which we accidentally absorb from the miasma... Yeah, it does involve moral goodness as a character. Where did that come from? Yeah. Yeah. So at the very least, it's callous. It's like there's no consideration for the sentient beings that are created and, in that, and that that's that's the biggest complaint to Plato and, and Aristotle is that it's it's cruel. It's unfeeling. It, it's, it's unlivable. They're great values, but it's so not unsympathetic of the human condition. I hear it. And yet, and yet, Rambam seems to go with them. Like in the... to, up to a point. Okay. But then the punchline, the punchline is, this infinite being needs you. So the reason, the, uh, the need to talk about how infinite God is, is just to show the contrast. And he needs you. Otherwise, the notion of infinity is, is irrelevant. What are finite beings babbling about infinity? Mm. To what advantage? The universe is endless. Okay, let's talk about something else. <laughs> but that's sorted. That's it. Right. So there's, there's little to say of, of relevance if, in that conception. If your conception of God begins and ends with he's everywhere and everything, he's got everything going on, then yeah. like that's yeah. what it so, is. <laughs> I'm talking to a guy. He says, I'm going out with this girl. She's unbelievable. She's yeah. brilliant. She's this. She's that. And she's, oh, she can do anything. She, I said, like, excuse me, does she want to marry you? <laughs> 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 yeah. Does she want to marry you? Otherwise, stop it. Wait a second. Otherwise, stop it? If she doesn't want to marry you, what are you talking about her for? I Wait, I thought they're dating in this scenario. They are. But she's... So he, he's mentioning everything about her except that she's interested in him. 
That seems to be the least relevant or least important part of this. And she's over the moon about me. Right. So as as it's, no, no, no. I'm over the moon about her. Right. So the fact that she, he's not saying she's over the moon about me means that, that he's not describing the relationship they have in some sense. There's no communication there. And it's starting to sound like she is so great, so smart, so capable, she doesn't even need you. Right. What do you bring to the party exactly? <laughs> right. Okay, so here's the point in the end then. What, what do we bring to the party? Ah. So it's a beautiful, beautiful subject. It's, I mean, it's so romantic. And Judaism, if you don't see the romance, mm-hmm. you're, you're missing the entire picture. Mm-hmm. Let's start at the beginning. The punchline of Judaism is, what have you done for your creator? That's the punchline. Bottom line, everything else is commentary. We are not here to get favors from God. That makes absolutely no sense. God creates us, gives us a bunch of problems, and tells us to beg him for a solution. (laughs) Is that not what... That that seems to be the model, at least like implicit. That's horrible. Right. It's, you know what it actually reminds me of, that conception taken seriously? Um, the Saw movies. You know, you familiar with these? Horrible, horrible set of horror movies. I don't recommend them. But just like the psychological, um, the, the, there's, this, there's this intense psychological point in the center of them. Um, and I think the premise is something like, and this goes on for like six or seven films, um, this guy kidnaps people from around the city with various vices and locks them in a room. And then when they wake up, a video plays on TV in the corner explaining why they've been kidnapped and which vice it is he's trying to teach them a lesson for. And then which horrible process of torture they're going to have to go through to get to get free of this room. That's the, that's the system. And I realize now, like, I mean, if, we, if we're going to psychoanalyze it, that's like, in a sense, it's... it's, it's All modern, religion. Right. It's modern man's response to, to, the, to being... Hope that's not for us. <laughs> We're not shutting down anyone's theology here. It's just New York. It's just New York. But but it's like that's that's the angst of being where you're like, well, I I guess God put me here and now I'm just gonna beg him for a, a gentle ride out. So that's not that's not a what that's not a way of living. There's no there's no That's a horrible God. Yeah. Well. Okay. So how it got turned upside down that God is here to take care of me mm-hmm. if, if I'm nice, if I behave, that's idolatry. Uh, the, the early idolaters didn't just make a little carving out of wood and then bow to it like an idiot. They were, they were not brainless. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the original idolatry is you start to worship something about God. Right, an aspect of the divine. A face, a facet. I am so dependent on him and he will help me. Isn't that beautiful? Not really. No. He is love, he is forgiveness, he is powerful, he is almighty. These These are idols. Are you worshiping infinity? Are you wowed by all-powerful? Does that excite you? 
Or are you really looking for love? And since love comes from God, you're worshiping love. Right. Not God. Uh, I don't know if I theologically agree that the terms are separate. But I, they are separate. God is not love. God created love. I, mm, mm, did he though? I think, like, doesn't the active creation, at least in the Kabbalistic model, presuppose that he's loving and he had no, um, that's the mistake. No love to be in love, no one, no lover? That's, that's the mistake. That's the mistake. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I hear it. Because I, I hear what you're saying with the, um, with the worshipping infinity thing. There's this line in um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where it's a description of, um, there's, a, there's a factory where they build planets. And so they have like a warehouse floor. And the warehouse, you can go to the warehouse floor and they've got like a few planets up, a few display planets, and they're actual sized planets. And there's this, there's this beautiful description of um, the protagonist, a regular Englishman just being brought here after them and seeing this. And the description is something like, um, uh, it looked, you know, it looked like the walls and the, stretch, and, and the roof stretched out to infinity. Um, which, of course, they didn't, but it was much more impressive than if they had, because actual infinity is quite stale and flat and boring. But these, this room did a much better impression of infinity than infinity does. So that's, that's the... I mean, if you look at, if you look at modern... Or even, even you know, the, the whole Greek tradition, of philosophical description of God, it's, it's mathematically beautiful, but, like, aside from... You know, sterile. Canada, yeah, it's sterile. Whereas, like, the, the psalmist writes about a god who makes the mountains dance like goats. The, the god who's, um, who commands the thunder and so on. Like, that's, a, that's, that's practical. It's, like, actually engage with the... A living god. A living god. Okay. So, <clears throat> if we want to describe God properly, he is the ultimate... Absolute perfect being. And mysteriously, that was not enough. Okay. Because it was only him. Okay. Why that's not enough, we will never understand. Oh, come on! That's what we bought the book to find out. No. The beauty of it is... Yeah. There is no reason. It's not that it's not enough because he's missing something. He's missing nothing. And yet, just to be me is not enough. Why? You know, we're very familiar with the statement, it is not good for man to be alone. Mm. Genesis 1. But how did that happen? How does it happen that it's not good for man to be alone? Because God created be. man alone. Wait, wait, do you mean why, how, how, did, how did the state of affairs arise that that was a necessary commentary? Or how did it arise in the nature of man? Nature of man. Ah. Why isn't it perfect to be alone? Leave me alone. Perfect. <laughs> why is it not good to be alone? Right, right. Why indeed? Well, if you're missing some money and you need somebody to give you money, mm. but that's not because you're alone. It's because you need a loan. <laughs> alone, <laughs> yeah. 
What's wrong with being alone? Certainly, according to Darwin, the survival of the fittest, if you're alone and sufficient, you are the most likely to survive. So, uh, with the Darwinian thing, I mean, it, there's, a, there's obviously a causal answer there, which is that humans are a gregarious and social species, and like many of the great apes, we have our tribe-living instincts, and a human who's alone is probably going to be a human eaten by the next large cat to come along. Well, that's because he's not capable, not because he's alone. Again, if he could be alone and perfect, wouldn't that be the best? So is it, do you mean in, in, in a vacuum or do you mean like practically for real people? I, I mean, practically, if I don't need anyone, mm -hmm. if I'm not dependent on anyone, am I not better off? One could say, hmm? what, at least materially, but, but something's missing here. Something mysterious. That man is not good alone, uh, it's, not, it's not a correct uh, statement, but it's unnatural. Logically, naturally, man should be best when he's alone. As are most of the beasts of the field, I guess. Many of the beasts of the field. It's interesting. The philosopher seems to have this instinct, again, to, to harp on the um, distinction between the, the, the fundamentally Greek and Talmudic modes. There's a, there's a sense in which like, you really get the impression from the philosopher, from, from Plato and Aristotle and such, that being by oneself in an armchair and thinking is in fact the best thing one can do. It's, it's the most noble pursuit. It's the most singular pursuit. It is in, to the extent that imitating God is virtue. It's, it's a virtuous thing. Right. For God himself sits alone on his throne. Exactly. That's why Superman dwells in his fortress of solitude in the, in the modern theology of comic books. And that's why if you think that perfection means being alone, mm. you're not going to be a good husband. <laughs> Probably not. Because just the fact that you have a wife proves you're imperfect, and that's a painful reminder. <laughs> yeah. And, it's there, and there goes the intimacy. Right. Right. But because, I mean, the, 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 the mode of interacting becomes one of inconvenience. Yes. Every so often you remember, oh, I'm married. Oh, that's right. And I need hmm. the services, the benefits that marriage brings. Because by myself, I couldn't do it. Right. But then again, it's like saying, it's like a husband saying, I love everything about my wife. I just don't need her. Right. I just want all the things she brings. But in, in return, I have to put up with her. <laughs> so sometimes it's worth it, sometimes it's not. Fair. So to me, it seems like the... That's not even a marriage. Right. It's a, it's, it's a, yeah, an the, agreement the, of mutual exchange. Yeah. Yeah. So marriage means I need you to be in my life, not something I get from you. I need you to be in my life. You meaning not me. Other than me. 
I need someone other than me. Why? I don't know. It's a divine instinct. God needed someone other than himself. Why? I don't know. So, does that make him imperfect? <clears throat> you think about it. If I need something from you, I'm obviously imperfect. If I don't need anything from you, but I need you to be in my life, and you're not, What am I missing? Give me a moment with that one. That's, wow. I've never, I'd never before drawn that, that, that parallel between good relationships and good theology. But, right, it's not that God needs any, any one particular thing in the same way that a good married couple doesn't need any one particular thing. You can always outsource. Right. You need the person. Yes. So it's not a thing, it's a who. What did God create the world for? Nothing. Who did he create it for? Oh, for us. Not, not for us. To have us. Well, okay, so then that's, that's the next layer, right? Did he create it so that he could have someone to be with or did he create it so that he he could have someone to give to the former wow the need to give is artificial where did that come from how does a perfect being have a need to give i don't know dude come on I, ask him i I couldn't tell you. No, no. The, the, the inconsistency is, in the beginning, there was only him. But he needed had a need to give. To give to whom? But, I mean, we're claiming... You, missed, you skipped a step here. Right. Okay, but... He already has a need to give, and there's no one to give to. Sure. So where did that need come from? I think... I think in other it, words, it, nobody, it, nobody needed you, but you want to give? Thank you very much. We don't need it. Keep uh, it. <laughs> ah, interesting. Because, like, if there's... Okay, so this, this reminds me of this, like, really um, subtle distinction between, like, waking up in the morning and saying, I want to do good. Where is the good that I can do? And waking up in the morning and being like, okay, is everyone okay? Oh, that person's not. I need to go fix this. I need to go help. So in the latter mode where the... Where the orientation is on helping the people who need help rather than doing good because that's a virtue that one's predecided on then like i mean assume god has the latter mode he wakes up in the morning all right who needs my help there's no one there there's no one who needs the help so then ah so in that in that reading he then artificially creates people who will depend on him and then spoon feeds him the help and then he feels like he's done a good deed but he set up the problem in the first place I see the paradox. Okay. It's right. senseless. The instinct to give when nobody needs. Yeah. It's 
Okay, so let me let me ask this then on the on the on the on the on the state because I, I follow that much, but then does that not render God's creation of all all the universe and and specifically of us as a fundamentally selfish act? Yes. Okay, that's the next step. Well, I'm glad you're biting that theological bullet at least. I expect yes. that. <clears throat> that's the next question. He was not happy being alone, so he created us. How selfish. Huh. Whoa, 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 whoa. Selfish? If that's not the, the most selfless <laughs> possibility, I'm not enough without you? That's selfish? That is such a humbling of self. I'm not enough without you. That's selfish. <laughs> that is the most humble thing you can imagine. With you, I'm complete. Without you, I'm not. Okay, so there's like a so there's a blow to God's proverbial ego, if you will, involved in the creation of the world. Absolutely. He's coming to us hat in hand and being like, look, here you go with some existence because now, look at marriage and look at creation. Okay. In order for a man to be married or for a woman to be married, she first has to be perfect. If she's still trying to improve herself, she's not ready to get married. If he's still working on himself, he has no business involving somebody else in his life at that point. You get married when you're done with yourself and you now have room for someone else. I feel like I get what you mean in the sense that you don't you don't want to go into it with massive personal flaws that you're hoping someone else will fix for you. But at the same time, isn't all of life a process of improvement? I mean, yes, but the focus is no longer there. Okay, so you can improve sort of as a side project while working on the fundamental project <clears throat> and letting somebody else in your life does bring up many improvements. <laughs> Incidental. Yeah. Right? It's like people say, how do I know I'm ready to get married? Yeah. Very simple thing. In the morning when you go into the bathroom and you look in the mirror. When you look in the mirror in the morning and you're fascinated, don't get married. If you look in the mirror and you say, you again? Time to get married. <laughs> wow. That's good. Right? Is that on a bumper sticker? Is that on a slogan? <laughs> Too long for a bumper sticker. I, I wanna I wanna put this on your um, on your Wikipedia quotes page. This one's really good. And your Wikipedia quotes page is very empty. Yeah? Yeah, yeah it's terrible. <clears throat> so yeah. in order to get to be married, listen to what a man or a woman has to do. You give up your independence. You give up your privacy. You give up your opinions. <laughs> you give up your opinion? If you want to stay married. <laughs> Get out of here. No, you learn how to respectfully integrate your, your right. differences in opinion. Come on. Right. You learn to respectfully. <laughs> okay. You go through that whole torturous process. Right? <laughs> Look how much you're giving up okay. in order to have someone else. Okay. In, in general, you have to, be, you have to stretch your entire existence to make room for another person. Look at what God had to do just to have us. Symptom? 
the Kabbalistic uh, pulling back of the self. He has to make room. Yeah, God's majesty fills everywhere. We need a little bit of not God in order for anything to exist. So imagine God restricting himself. Hmm. Who, who would want to do that? And in order to have us, he has to send a little piece of himself down into this ugly world. Why would he want to do that? He has to create a tree in the middle of paradise that is nothing but trouble. <laughs> right. A tree in the middle of paradise that is nothing but trouble. Nice. He has to create sin. He has to create suffering. He has to create exile. He hates all of that. <laughs> right. The Gemara says three things God regrets every day. One of them is the Yetzirah. Hmm. So look at how much he has to sacrifice just so that we would have free choice and be able to either join him or refuse him. Well, it's interesting you say free choice here because the common, the common theological move here is, is to have free will be a central piece in this, um, in this whole drama. But I, um, I really enjoyed... Trying to remember, I was reading um, a, a a web series novel called Unsung by Scott Alexander. It's like um, I guess Kabbalistic punk. It's alternate universe. Very very fun read. But there's this there's this um, interlude where he's right he he's writing um about the uh the Chagadia song from Pesach and like the, the what there is a kid that father bought for two zuzim one kid one kid a goat right. There's a goat, and he and what he, you know, and people are um, working. And he's like, he starts by pointing out that no one knows where the sun came from. It's very bizarre. It doesn't seem to fit, but all everyone's like really, 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 really big on it. It's very important to keep it in the the Haggadah. It's very, like, it's very significant. And then everyone argues about what it means. And and what the interpretation he brought out was that um, the goat is. Uh, I'm trying to remember. So the father's God, big surprise there, shocker. Um, and I think the goat is maybe evil, probably evil. And then the Tuzuzim is is duality, and like what God is purchasing with the creation of the world is duality. And he says the whole entire way we frame our theology is backwards. We're like, why is there, why is there, why would God create um, evil? And it's like, no, the, the reverse question is true. You don't assume like a nothingness and then like God puts evil there. It's like you assume a, a realm of pure godness. Everything is full to the brim with God. And then he's pulling back. And he has to pull back in order for anything else to exist. And like that duality is what creates the, the possibility of not there. So he gets the whole thing done without without needing the free will the free will issue to even come through with all its thorny implications. Like even without the free will case, you know, you have to have the pulling back. You have to have the not God, far from God, possible. But if you're speaking in romantic terms, sure. the only reason to pull back is to leave room for another. Cool. And the other is not an other if he doesn't have free will. Then he's just your clone. Right. And you see this in like the hosts of angels who fly around God and repeat his praises, but don't really yeah. have much independence. 
Okay. So even after creating angels, God is still alone. Mm. Think about that for a thousand years, huh? Like I'm, I'm trying to, like the earthly parallel there seems to be people who can construct pristine instruments. The, the, the genius inventor in his workshop surrounded by what have you. Or even the husband who will serve his wife like an angel. In every possible way, he is there for her. And she's completely alone. Because his, his relationship with her is as an extension of his perfection. Woof. Woof. And then she, her entire being becomes, in a sense, a, an extended sarcastic tribute to him. Terrible. Amazing. So, what is intimacy? Intimacy is a result of divine vulnerability. Because now we can understand what vulnerable really means. It's not, you hurt me. It's, I'm not good without you. How vulnerable is that? And it's not coming from weakness. It's not because you can hurt me. Wait, say that again. Vulnerability isn't that you can hurt me. It's that I'm not good without you. You mean morally good or like good in myself? Not enough. Not enough. I'm insufficient without you. Well, I mean, that contains the essence of hurt because you can leave, right? No, before we even get there. Okay. Just the fact that I'm not, I'm not enough without you. How vulnerable that is. So the human And it has nothing to do with weakness. It's all virtue. How is it all virtue? It's humility. Right. Right. How can a perfect being not be enough? So there's a confession involved in the, in the creation of the world. Which makes no sense. It's None. divine mystery. Why is being perfect not enough? Why do you need someone other than you when you are so perfect? Okay. So let's let's talk within this framework. Let's talk eschatology for a moment. We've got we've got a God who um, isn't is is in some sense insufficient in himself. Creates creates the world, creates humans, so he can be in, in relationship with humans. Now there's self and other. Now there's dialogue. Um, now there's what is it in the words of Buber? Ich du, not just ich es. What's in this model? What is what's the messianic age? What are we heading for? Where's the what's the narrative, the triumphant narrative conclusion? If if <clears throat> okay, now we get to another fascinating, important subject, and that is loneliness, right? What is wrong with being alone? Here's, here's a, a really important psychological, theological, on every level. Do we ask to be born? No. No. Oh, well... Yeah, no. Maybe? Probably not. No. We don't ask to be born because we don't need to be born. 
we're, we're, we're good in the proverbial chamber of goof. We could just hang around in the miasma of souls. Or nothing. Or nothing, that's fine. I guess. So, we don't ask to be born because we don't need to be born. We are born, nonetheless, and all of a sudden, I have demands, I have needs, I have opinions. Something isn't consistent here. I don't need to be born, but you better give me what I need. Where's the inconsistent? Spell that out for me. All right. You tell a child <clears throat> to put away the dishes, clean up after himself at the table, and the kid says, hey, I didn't ask to be born. Meaning to say, where do I get the responsibility to clean up a table? I don't even need to be here. Right. Right. You, you put me into this mess. Why are you making demands on me? I don't have to. You have to clean up your room. No, I don't. I don't even have to be here. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a contingent being, not a necessary being. Okay, sure. Now, you can call that depression. <laughs> you, can, you can say the kid's in a really bad mood. Or it's simply the truth. Right. It's not just the kid who didn't ask to be born. His parents didn't even ask to be born. <laughs> Nobody asks to be born. So let's get back to the original picture. In the beginning, you didn't exist. You didn't need to exist, and that's why you didn't ask to be born. So why are you here? Not out of your need, because you need this like a hole in the head. You are here because someone needs you, namely your creator. And that's the meaning. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. What is it saying? In the beginning means before there was you, he created. So who needs? It's his need, not yours. Right. Okay. But he creates you, and then all of a sudden you need him to give you money. What the? How did I get switched? You needed nothing. He needed you. He made you. Now you need him. Huh. Okay. So when a person says, I need to eat. If you think clearly, I don't need to eat. It's not my idea. I didn't choose this. If I designed myself, I would not need to eat. <coughs> and yet? So my need to eat is not mine. Mm. It's his. He needs me to eat. Because the... Because that's how he designed me. Okay. Right. For reasons I can't figure out. Why do this to me? <laughs> I need to stop eating. <laughs> and I can't. This is not my need. This is an imposed handicap.
Okay, so to recap, if he, God, God needs you, so he makes you, and then you have a need to eat. And where did that need come from? That need was what, designed in, as it were. So God put that speck in, in your design, which therefore me, makes your need to eat, in fact, God's need to eat. Yes. Okay. What's the, what's the lesson here? What's the upshot? Right, so <clears throat> the upshot is modern psychology, beginning with Freud, I guess, mm. all of psychology, mm. focuses on human needs. What is your deepest, darkest need? Is it pleasure? Is it power? Is it what is it? What is it? Um, that is Xanatos. Uh, Xanatos, the um, human death instinct. Yeah. What's the what? Right, human needs as as, cent, as central to our entire metaphysics. Okay. The correct answer is. Why do you think humans have needs? We don't have needs. We didn't ask to be born. We don't need to be born. We have no needs. Oh, come on. That's, come on. Surely, surely, Rob, that's not answering the question in, in good faith. Which question? Question, <laughs> what, why do you think, what, what, what a human needs? And what, I mean, obviously, baked into that question, as far as I see it is, in order for a human to be psychologically healthy and fulfilled in the world, in order for existence to be a reasonably good experience rather than a reasonably bad experience, what is required? I mean, and in that sense, you know, food yeah, is... But if you one. say, yes, food is necessary, drink is necessary, security, safety, all these things are absolutely necessary. And I resent it. <laughs> I didn't ask for any of that. Right. So it's not coming from me. Mm -hmm. This is, I think, where people today have a modern-day neuroses. I don't need any of this, and yet I can't exist without it. This is frustrating. Uh, they resent the fact that they, that they have hunger of all forms. Or any. I, I have to make a living? Ugh. I hate it. Gross. Yeah. I have to get a job. I hate it. I have to get married. I hate it. Burden after burden. That's right. Which I suspect I don't need. Because <laughs> I didn't ask to be born. Mm. Now we're throwing out the whole package. Like this guy who's suing his parents for giving birth to him without his consent. Mm. This is what's happening today. We've come to the point where we realize there is nothing about me that is necessary. All my needs, the whole package, all my needs, I don't need. So when you say to a child today, I think it's the first time in history, you say to a child today, you know, you, you gotta grow up. Mm. No, I don't. Mm. You gotta be a mensch. No, I don't. Or Jewish mothers, you gotta be gesund. No, I don't. You gotta live. No, I don't. 
Stop putting the, putting the burden on me. We're getting close to a divine revelation. <laughs> sure hope so. It's not about me. It really is not about me. I am not needy. I am needed. All, all I'm asking is, tell me who needs me. That's all. Because I don't need any of this. Right. So it's, it's, it's interesting to, to look at this as um, in the same model as above. I mean, we're, we're sort of in this, in this large arc circling around in some sense to the opening discussion about intimacy. But um, you see, you see uh, God's relationship with man mirrored in, in the intimate relationship between man and wife. You also see God's relationship with man in, mirrored in the relationship between parent and child. And this, is, um, this idea that you're saying, it, it, it sort of stems out. Like, a, a child doesn't, doesn't need to be born, but a parent needs to have children for the, for the sake of the, of the meaningfulness of the life of the parent. Don't need that. Don't need that? You don't think parents need children? I didn't ask to be born. I don't need to be born. But I do need to perpetuate my existence. That's ridiculous. Well, I mean, that's, that's the... I get what you're saying in the sense that, like, that's yet another need on the long artificial. Term. Sure, but I'm saying, like, why does a child, a child exist? It's not because, in 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 a direct sense, at least, it's not because the child, as you say, the child wasn't saying, "Hey, come on, come on, let me be born." It was more than the truth. The parents were like, "You know, it would really be a meaningful choice to have kids." And that might be like, you know, biological, it might be like cognitive. And, but, and whose idea is that? Well, it's the kids. Because no. Oh, sorry. Um, it's God's. Yes. But it's like the parents, the parents, by, by creating children, suddenly they're needed, which, is, which goes to your point, because you're saying that these, the, satis- the, what, the completion of a personal being is to be needed yes. rather than to have one needs fulfilled. Yeah. One's needs fulfilled. And, and that exists on many levels. Sure. So... You know the idea of eating with shame shamayim? Eating with shame shamayim. So you get some food and you make a blessing on it and you sanctify it and you go, I'm going to put this, I'm going to, what is it, what is Hillel's phrase? I'm going to take care of this poor creature. I will sustain this body of mine so that my service can continue. Is that, is that it? That's the traditional idea that you okay. eat in order to serve God. Okay. So your intentions are with shame shamayim. Now it turns out, every time you eat, it's L'Shem Shamayim. Because eating is not your idea. Huh. You only eat because God created you that way. So the, the, there doesn't need to be a particular cognitive or moral choice on the part of the individual. It's a fact. <laughs> really? Unless you disturb it by thinking, I need to eat. Don't make it personal. There is needing to be eaten. Hmm. So the, the default the default default of eating is to be divine service in that sense. It is right. only the presence so, of ego that occludes that. Exactly. So if you eat to satisfy yourself, you're disturbing something. 
You're making it sound like it's your idea. <laughs> eating is not your idea. It's not even for you. It's not even good for you. If we didn't eat, we'd live forever. Get out of here. Yeah. Where's the energy in the system coming from? Well, if we didn't need the energy. Right, okay. If we weren't dependent on vegetables. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> if we could just photosynthesize directly. Trees don't have natural lifespans. Like the golem. Like the golem. Could have lived forever. What's your, what's your position on the golem? My position? Yeah. Like, I'm not voting yeah. for him or anything. No, but I mean like, I don't know, are you a, are you a the golem's a metaphor guy? Are you no, a, no, like, no. the golem's a real... Real thing. I was going to say flesh and blood, a real clay and spirit thing. <laughs> yeah. do, do you reckon he's still like sequestered somewhere in Prague? Probably not. No? No. He had to be destroyed. Do you reckon? Where to, the Gemara speaks about it you know, long before the Maral of Prague. Yeah. That uh, all of the sages were able to make, and some of them did. Yeah. They made golems to be their personal, because they wouldn't, they wouldn't take service from another human being. Oh, really? That was like a, yeah, that was a position of this. And the real still about Shemtiv as a teenager started to make a goal and then he was told to stop. <laughs> well, well, by Achi the Shaloni. Like, can I ask if the if the if the sages of the Talmud had golems running around, like how they lost to a couple of Roman legions? Like, there's a there's a war that goes on, and and we almost win it just with like. Just with the size of our with it with what military strategy and a large granary, what's what's why aren't we uh, deploying the undead armies? Can we create a whole army of golems? Honestly, create one, and you have a good superhero movie right there. That's good for a mugger. It's not good for an army. Isn't 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 a golem by tradition a being of clay animated by word that is immune to all forms of harm ten cubits above and below ground? Yeah, but what can you do? Just punch his way through the Roman legions. I mean, look what Hannibal managed with just a couple of war elephants. A golem's at least as good as that. At least, you know, you can't. What you? And some people with the elephants lose. Hmm. Sure, but how do they lose? They lose because the Romans learn to move to the side and spear him, which doesn't work in a golem. Or they, or they lose because the Romans learn to blow trumpets and scare the elephants back into their lines, which doesn't work with a golem. Or they send a few soldiers to deal with the golem and then kill everybody else. What do you mean deal with? There's no deal Keep with. Keep busy. <laughs> Come on. Distract them. Wait, okay, but like, at least you try. I'm sure they did. You, don't, you put your army in behind them. You reckon... Alright, Josephus doesn't mention this. Mm. I mean, I get that this is kind of like a, a side point, but I mean, the, the presence of the supernatural in war doesn't... It's not supernatural. Okay. Everything that is is natural. Yeah. Okay, fair. So, um, getting back to the intimate thing. Sure. The needs of... The, the vulnerability of God is such a neglected subject. In a sense, the sacrifice, how much he sacrifices in order to have this relationship. The Al-Tadeb says in Tanya, giving up some of your pleasures is totally justified. Look how much he gives up. So there's nothing 
super rational in the religious sense mm. that is required of us. It's simply, can you respond? He needs you. Respond like a mensch. If he needs you essentially, unconditionally, then, then respond that way. It's not like, have Maseris Nefesh, give up everything like right. for, for some religious... No. It's, it's the relationship. So there, there doesn't need to be some highly complicated mystical structure superimposed on your, on your conception. You just wake up and you're like, wow, I've been called forth into being by God. And reciprocate. Reciprocate. That's why the Baal Shem felt that the simple Jew was much closer than the scholar. How's that? He just reciprocated. He didn't make a religion out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, you, you've got a new video out, uh, Religion Can Be Harmful to Your House. That, that, that's the, even to your moral health. <laughs> even to your moral health. Right. It's like this guy who was having problems with his wife, and one day he says to me, things are much better. I figured her out. Oof. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Ugh, it makes the skin crawl. Yeah. They're not better. She's in big trouble now. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. So, There's no way this power will be used for evil. Yeah. So the scholar who says, I figured God out. You figured him out? There's no romance there. He didn't ask you to figure him out. <laughs> he asked you to reciprocate. Ah. So. Ah. This is, this is interesting. Um, I, I, I'm interested in this because I, I noticed that um, there was a study a while ago on, on moral philosophers, on uh, and professors in universities whose specialty is philosophy of ethics. And they basically followed these guys around or did like self-reports. How much charity do you give? What, how do you respond to moral situation X and Y? And what they found was that being a, um, a philosopher of ethics had no effect either way on one's moral conduct. Hmm. It's, 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 a, it's a purely academic pursuit in that sense. And that's, that's, that's entirely missing the point. Yeah. What is it Rimanaka Mendel of Kotsk says? There's a, kind of, there's a kind of scholar that likes to... Um, rub his belly with a couple of the pages of the Talmud and feel satisfied? <clears throat> so, the first words of the Ten Commandments translated into English. I am God, your God. Is there some meaning to that? Hold on, I am, I am, I, well, I guess it's, it's, they use the, uh, the tetragrammaton in there. I am the eternal, your God. I am the Lord, your God. I think there's meaning there. Like this is, this is my inside scoop that I hope is not heretical, but the Rob will correct me. 
Um, I think in order to understand the simple, just the simple level of what of the conversation that's happening in the Torah, you gotta understand what the what the default cultural presumption was about what God what gods were, what that phrase means. What is the what what is the notion of a deity? And I think that like we've sort of lost it in the modern day because the conversation today is theism or atheism, and polytheism isn't really seen as a serious position. Um, I mean, even with even in Hinduism, the most polytheistic of the modern faiths, like nine hundred years ago, they were already like um, had formalized notions of monotheism in it. Um, Advaita Vedanta, I think it's called Shankara stuff. But in the in the ancient world, the presumption is that everything has a spirit to it, and that that spirit is 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 animate, and that spirit is is everlasting, and that spirit survives, was here before you and will be here after you. There's a, um, there's a book, Blood Meridian, that I think gets this right, where it says something like, before, before there was, like, there's a spirit of war that exists in the book, and this, and this, this character that's a warrior and, and represents the spirit of war, and it says something like, before there was man, um, there was war, the perfect craft waiting only for a being to exist that could perform him. And I think like that's the perspective that the ancient person has when he goes and, and offers a sacrifice to Ares or what have you before going to battle. That all makes sense to me. And it's in that context where people go around sacrificing of themselves in devotional sense or in like a physical acted out sense to the spirit of war for success and war and the spirit of love, success and love and what have you. It's in that context that the revolutionary concept comes through. I am the Lord, your God. So it's, I'm, or I'm the eternal, the, the, the shame of I, your God. So it's like, if this, I'm the only one that, I'm the one that you get. Uh, who took you out of Egypt? So that's the relationship. It's the, I'm the spirit that got you out of there. And that's how we that's how we started this whole ball rolling. And because you're free men now, we're we've got our bond going on. Second one, it's an exclusive relationship. And that whole conversation to me makes sense in the context of taking other gods seriously, at least at first, if if um in order for that rejection to be meaningful. What what say you to that? Have I crossed any lines? No, here? no, that's fine. Okay. The correct English not literal translation of the words, but what is being conveyed. Follow the Hebrew. Anechi Hashem. I, God, not I am God. Ah, because they're who. It's not Anechi who Hashem. Right. I, God, am yours. Anechi Hashem Elekecha. That's it. I, God, am your God. I'm yours. I, the name, am your God. Wow. Cool. And so he's not, he's not introducing himself as the creator. He's being romantic. Right. I'm yours. Now, I'm God, meaning... I'm perfect, so you expect me to be indifferent. Right. No, I'm all yours. Elokecha. 
<coughs> it's interesting when you say like that the position is relationship rather than um, um, rather than uh, what sterile, because the, the the way that we find God referred to, like a couple of the very common ways are um, God creator of heaven and earth and God who took you out of Egypt. Right. And all the commentaries ask that question. If you want to impress the people, right. don't just say, I took you out of Egypt. Say, I created everything. Right. He's not trying to impress you. And that's why it made sense that the Jews' response was, Na'asevavishma. He said, I'm all yours. What are we supposed to say? What do you want? This is the, that's the, um, that's the romantic climax in a sense. That's the scene in the rain. Yeah. Wow. He said, I'm all yours and our knees went weak. Nasa Vinishma, we will, what we will do and we will heed. And the implication is that we're, we're just, we, we're all in. Yeah. We'll figure out the details later. And that's reciprocal. Okay. Lest we lest we um, fall into the trap here of, of, um, of, of this conversation being academic, how what's something that we can we could take from this? That listeners could take from this in, in order to uh, you know okay. live this out. Chosid means beyond the letter of the law. Right. That's why the title Chosid, in its classical sense is greater than a tzaddik. Because tzaddik means perfectly following the law. Mm -hmm. Chassid means going beyond the letter of the law. Mm -hmm. What is beyond the letter of the law? Sounds like chaos. Anarchy. No, it means it means you don't just buy her flowers for her anniversary. Sometimes you just buy her flowers cause. Just cause. That's beyond the letter of the law. Sure, anniversary of I him. thought that was the one. No. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> fine. So you have you have that minhag fine. <laughs> so, beyond the letter of the law, in English it doesn't really work. For, but lifnim mishudas hadin. Lifnim meaning before, not beyond. Could you give me the whole formulation again? Lifnim? Lifnim Mishuras Hadin. Lifnim before Mishurat the The order, the structure. Of what's what's the Shura is there? Shura, uh, a line, a path. Okay. What is before the din? What is what precedes the law? Ah. The sense. The, the lawgiver. Okay. Don't follow laws. Follow him. Nice. Nice. What is it? The Menachem and the Lukotsk again. Um, the Chassid uh, worships God and the Misnagid worships the Shulchan Aruch. It's the same idea. Yeah. Right. So, practical application. From the youngest age, not after you've become a tzaddik, mm. you become a chassid. No, first become a chassid. First chassid, then Yerushalayim, then London. Chassid first. First the personal relationship with God. Right. 
which means when you teach your child to make a bracha on a cookie, don't leave out the most essential part of the whole story. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Can I, can I guess this one? Is it the word atta? Yeah? I learned that from Rabbi Mike Boyer in Yerushalayim. And that is reminiscent of what a chassan says to the kawa under the chuppah. Harem kudeshet li. Re'at. Re'at mukudeshet li. It doesn't start with me. Behold you. Woof. Behold you are consecrated unto me. So I like to joke about it. Ask the average kawa. What did he say? He says, Hare'at. Um, I forget the rest. <laughs> doesn't matter anymore. Oh, dear. He said you. <laughs> Whereas in the non-Jewish thing, it's like, I promise I to yeah. cherish and I'll do this and I'll do this. Uh, got off on the wrong foot. You got start on the with wrong I. foot. You start with behold you. Baruch Atah. Blessed you. Atah is simply the... <laughs> The, the, the male version of that. Okay, so, so practically... No, but, but the point okay, is, sure. you tell a child, make a bracha, God is waiting to hear your bracha. So much more meaningful than saying, you're mechuyev. <laughs> yeah. You can't eat without a bracha. Ugh. Right? How is that a way to bring up a child? Yeah, it's tough. You don't make a bracha, you can't get the cookie. Mm, (laughs) Or other such versions of... Yeah. Or it's a big mitzvah. Big mitzvah. What does that even mean? There's no context for that. What are the mitzvahs? This is is a serious question. What are the mitzvahs? His wish list. His wish list. Ah. Ah. Straight through the heart. Okay, so I, I I, I sort of get a bit of where you're coming from here. With respect to children, on board with it. Um, I think, like, the issue at this point is that, at least coming from where I'm coming from, like, we're a generation of, of 20 and 30-year-olds who didn't necessarily get that as, as children. Or if we did, it didn't resonate. And that's... And, like, we're, we're in this um, sort of situation where we're trying to bootstrap ourselves up. It works fantastically. You wake up in the morning, you got to put on film. And you don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to. Right. I'm not in the mood. Right. And then you intensify the argument. I don't need this. Here we go. Perfect. What took you so long? (laughs) Whoever said you needed this? I was thinking about this 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 point. I think not not in as much detail, obviously, but specifically um, something about the the um, prince. What is it? The primacy of something like tefillin, because you know there's there's this wonderful um, old uh, habit. People love to do this. They go through the Bible and they're like, oh, you see this passage? It's useful for this. You see how pigs are forbidden? Because pigs in that area at that time, they carried this disease. It was very clever, good, good agriculture work. And like the idea is like eliminate the chokim from Judaism. Let's just get rid of them, like have everything make sense. And like a really, really important part of it is 
those specific actions which are like utterly meaningless in terms of maximizing efficiency, those are the ones to look for. Because that's where the... Oh, that's the what? That's, that's the, him. That's him. That's the transcendence. That's self-transcendence acted out. So it is so it is so enlightening when you realize you know you, you're raised in a from anyone raised in a religious family or religious community you you have to make a bracha you have to put on film hmm. you can't do this on Shabbos mm. what's wrong with you Ugh. right all the pressure is on us that's the way it's been for a thousand years. Okay. You gotta be a good Jew. A thousand years, like since least. the Rishonim. Is there no really? I, I, why do you pick that figure? I'm I'm hoping that before that we were still on track. <laughs> really? Yeah. Is that, there an indicator? We, didn't, we didn't forget about God that quickly. Okay. Wait a second. Is there like I I, I have to ask about this? Is there a specific time period no. in Jewish history where you look and go, oh, I can't. No. We lost our way here. No. I never even tried to figure it out. Okay. But certainly since the exposure to Christianity. We, we can't be any less than them. Right. You Specifically, know? like, once the Neoplatonists had, like, this sophisticated they, theology. They, 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 they want to get to heaven. What, I don't? Mm. They don't want to go to hell. You think I do? And all of a sudden, heaven and hell became a big deal. It, it was not good. At any rate. Mm. Mm. When, let's put it this way, how did Christianity get off the ground? They came to Jews living in Israel practicing Judaism, <laughs> and all of a sudden they bought into Christianity. I think how did like they do that? How it got off the ground? Yeah. I think there was an argument in the, the first century, as I recall, um, as to whether or not circumcision was still necessary to, to be a Christian. And those people, the non-circumcisers won, and everyone's like, great. How do you do that to people who are committed and dedicated since the time of Avraham to circumcision? I don't, I don't know that they did. I think like the once they once they the what like Christianity at first was just like a sect of Judaism. Once they dropped the once they dropped the circumcision, then it became free for all. Okay, but before that, before that, they came and they said, "You know how you have to keep six hundred and thirteen mitzvahs in order to get to heaven." Yeah. Not anymore. Isn't that good news? So what they did is... <laughs> Isn't that good news? I like it. <laughs> so they set up a false premise. Right. And then shot it down. The reason you keep 613 mitzvahs is to get to heaven. It's not a checklist you get through. It's a way of being. It's the wrong. Who ever thought of that? Grumpy husbands who didn't understand the gift of marriage, I guess. I, I'm, I'm trying to follow And that's where God fell out of the picture. Because now it's just me in heaven, which is this thing I'm trying to get. And, and God is nothing more than the gatekeeper of yes. this heaven state. Yep. Wow, okay, I finally get it. Because there's, um, there's this thing I've heard. The Alter Rebbe says it. And the Havdil, um, I think the Sufi mystic Rabi says it. Um, so that I can't remember the, the similar formulation. Something like, "If I um, if I serve you only for love of heaven, deny me heaven. If I serve you only for fear of hell, cast me straight into hell." 
And that's why. Because that's missing the whole point. That's looking, um, in a sense, like the, the, the God's response to someone whose eyes are fixated on heaven is, my eyes are up here. That's that. Actually, his eyes are down here. My eyes are down here. What is it Carl Jung says? Modern man cannot see God because he doesn't set his gaze low enough. Right. Yeah. So, <clears throat> a person says, I, I don't need this. I don't want to put on film. Mm. Excuse me. <laughs> when did it become about you? It was never about you. But that's how we're raised. You have to. What's going to be with you? And that carries over into the secular. Get good grades. Who's going to, what college is going to accept you? Now what are you going to do? Become a peddler? <laughs> right? It was like, what's going to be with you? And you have to, and you need, and you must. And Hey, hey. Today we're at a point where, get off my back. I don't have to do anything. Mm. I'm suicidal, okay? It's because you don't have to do anything. I don't know why I'm even here. Leave me alone. And I'm saying that's a positive development. You're getting closer to the truth. Emptying out the stables, in a sense. Right. All right. So this, this, this new revelation that's calling to be brought forth, how do, we, how do we steward her into the world? The Rebbe started this project, put filling on with people in the streets. What is that? It's a Zen koan is what it is. They go home and they're like, what the hell did I just do? What was, what, what was that? This guy just said, put this thing on your arm, wrap it around you, wrap it around a few times, say this, all right, we're good, we're done. It's like, that's the whole process. That's it. And then, then like, in order, then the, it becomes a sort of, I guess, a cognitive itch that you just keep scratching at because you're trying to figure out why. So what's going on in the person's mind? Right. I didn't need that. The guy who asked me to put on tune, he doesn't need that. He didn't need that. What did he get from it? Who benefited from this? Oh, it's because I'm Jewish. Well, so what? So what? The resistance to the project was, what, you're going to put on film with a guy one time, you think he's going to become from? Sure. It, it was always like, so, so what is he going to become? And the devil said, he's not going to become anything. God will have a mitzvah. Can we talk about this for a second? The Tefillin Project? Because I'm like, I'm, I'm in principle on board, but I don't, I don't understand how it's done in a way that's like integrative and sensitive. Like, it feels to me like it's a, I don't, I don't get like how, how I walk up to a person and say, you know, are you Jewish? Do you want to do this ritual with me? Okay, I guess like that, but I mean, is it not? 
I feel like that's that's impolite. Like it's insensitive towards people. Like it's it's uh, selecting strangers for their religious affiliation. It, it, I'm sure many people take it that way. But if many people take it that way, then don't we have like an obligation from the point of view of sensitivity and no. Derek Eric's cognitive tyrant to not no. do that? <laughs> no. None of that. I'm given to every political correctness. It's not about political correctness to me. Come on, man. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think like, it's not like, ooh, I, I, must, I must attend to the, again, you know, that's political correctness is like, is the law. I'm looking at the lawgiver. I'm looking at the people. Political, Are people going to get upset by this? Political correctness means walk right past that person and don't even notice him. That's politically correct. Sure. You stop the person. He say, excuse me, are you Jewish? Wow. You just broke the mold. Right. Fine. The mold I'm not concerned about. The mold is the, mold is so, the artificial so is, law. It's the empty right. law. But so, the so there is the inherent compliment there that people used to politically correct don't get anymore. This is a human interaction. Here. Right. You know, you no longer get to be human with people. There's a there's an actual discourse and there's a real question there. Yeah. And you're not you're not concerned about people being upset or distressed by you that confrontation? Be, you try to be as polite as possible. Mm. If the person's upset, you apologize. But that's min that's first of all, the damage is really minimal. Okay. <laughs> Sure, I I don't get over it in twenty minutes. I'm an outsider here in this regard. But on the other hand, just asking, "Are you Jewish?" Forget forget the film. Mm. Just excuse me, you Jewish? I I just I just thought I'd ask. (laughs) You mess up. You mess up his day. (laughs) (laughs) You mess up his day. (laughs) He can't get that out of his mind. Yeah, I'm Jewish. Oh, I don't do a lot of Jewish things. Yeah, but yeah, I'm Jewish. Right. Well. Not like my grandfather. It wow. starts this whole... Yeah. Wow. It, stop, it stop wakes the up in the shama like... Yeah. Right. Ask, ask the question. Yeah. So the thing that justifies the mitzvah is what comes before the mitzvah. Before the commandment, there's the commander. If you skip that, what are you doing? Creating a cult? Before the commandment comes the commander. Okay, so this is the 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 literal meaning of mitzvah is, is commandment. But isn't isn't commander and command commanded like the the sort of military or hierarchical uh, language involved there? Isn't that inherently unromantic? Yes, and I hate that word. Which one? Commandment. Well, you just used it. I know. We all use it. Right. Mitzvah means commandment. From titzaveh. Ata titzaveh. You shall command. That's not... Is that not what that means? It does. But in in an intimate relationship, commandment? Husbands and wives have commandments? Right. (laughs) Does not... it's jarring. The word mitzvah also means connection, right? Does it? Yes. From what was shurish? Um, certainly in Aramaic, tzafsa means connection. Tzafsa, ah. Tzafsa. 
with the tzaddik, tzaddik, yeah. So here's here's the here's the real beauty of it. God says, connect to me. as bnei Yisrael. You shall bind the people to me. To me. Right? Wow. Now, our that's why we have strings to remind us of the mitzvahs. Our reaction to that is your wish is, is my command. command. Nice. He's not commanding. He's wishing. But if you wish, see, it's the command, it's who. If it's your wish, well then. Right, then at our end, we're receiving that as, sure thing. We, we love you. Okay. I hear that. Okay. Your wish is my command. That's specifically what that means. It's the, it's the amplifying of the, 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 the desire of, of one party into the, into the all-encompassing drive of the other. Okay. That's cool. So mitzvahs are not optional to him. Having us or not having us, it's not optional. It's like, if you're not going to respond to me, then I'm canceling the whole creation. I don't need any of this. I just need you. If I can't have you, I don't need heaven and earth unless I can get you. Without you, I cancel heaven and earth. I don't need it. Okay. So I'm going to... Can I, can I run a sideline side here or there? I just want to, I want to understand this. That makes sense, right? God creates us to be in a relationship. Fantastic. Mitzvahs is a system for, create, for building that relationship or for maintaining that. A series of steps to the dance, if you will. A series of um, left leg here, forward, right, left, right leg there, back. Well, it's more like God is sitting at his Shabbos table observing Shabbos. And you don't show up? Oh, that one cuts. So if you don't show up, what is he missing? Mitzvahs? <laughs> He's missing you. You're not at the table with him. Yeah. So what does it mean, the mitzvah? God says, look, this is what I do. Join me. Then I'll have you. So I created you because I need you. But if you don't show up, I don't have you. I'm sitting by a Shabbos table. You're doing something else. And then the non the non meaningfulness of life, in some sense, emerges from that that the failure of that romance. Also, if you don't show up at the table, does he need you less? If you don't show up at the table, does he need you less? Ah, uh, it's a tricky one. Hold on. If you don't show up, does he need you less? I guess not. Because he needs the need you. Is, the need is constant. The need is for you. But but not, not to have you fight him. He wants you. Mm. That's the bottom. But he wants you with him, not against him. So if you don't show up at the table, he needs you less. Maybe he needs you a little more. Oof. Okay, here, here, let's, let's run some numbers real quick. 
millions of Jews, billions of humans. It's a big Shabbos table. Is he really going to notice if a couple of chairs are empty? He's good at math. <laughs> <laughs> there's this, um, there's this, there's this uh, old, old line from, I think, Plato. I think he had it over the, um, the, the, um, God being good at math. He had this, this, um, passage over the top of the entrance to the academy. I think it was, Ioth Theos Geometri. God always geometrizes. I remember I, uh, I told this to my friend Yankee back home, and he was like, God always geometrizes? Really? You're all powerful and that's what you're spending your time on? Geometry homework? Come on, live a little. That turned a lot of people off. The eternal geometry homework. Geometry? I'm out of here. <laughs> Why would anyone be uncomfortable with a personal God? Well, we're raised to believe that we're not allowed to attribute any human descriptions to God. Not allowed. I think it's like an overreaction to Christianity. Do you, do you find that? Because I feel like the, the Christian, ah, you mean like to, the, to specifically the embodiment aspect of it, right? Because the theological aspect is like, it's, uh, it's neoplatonic, I guess. It's, it's precisely the sort of sterility that the Talmudists were fighting, were not participating in. But yeah, the whole God made flesh thing sort of weirded us out of it. So God's arm, God's mouth, God's eyes, God's will, God's anger, God's speech, all of it is... Metaphor. Metaphor. And metaphor means... It's not really, you know... Uh... <laughs> it's difficult to understand. Better you should you should learn you should learn your Torah and Gemara now, or maybe when you're after, after forty, you could learn some Kabbalah, dip your toe in the. the but the main zone. thing is, don't you dare believe it. Yeah, don't believe it. No, no, nah. nah. So what actually, what actually has happened, is that in our attempt not to make God sound human we end up with a God who is subhuman. Whoa! Subhuman. Does it hurt you when you see people suffering? It does. Does it hurt him? I would hope so. No, you don't. Oh, of course not, I can't hurt him. And if it doesn't hurt him, then he's like, he's what, morally stunted? Psychopathic even. Um, m machinery, that's the thing. Mechanical. So, we are created in his image. Is that not the first thing That's we know surprise. about? Yeah. So, why do I have an arm? Because he has an arm. Ah, you tricked me. But, um, yeah, like the Idra Rab is very big on this. Because he has an arm. And he has a beard. A long beard. I have needs. You do. He has needs. So when we say it's a metaphor, we're not talking about him. We're talking about us. We, we're the marshal. Yes. He's the nimshal. Yes. Wow. We're the parable. Wow. He's the truth maker. Human beings speak. Not really. 
But kind of, a little bit. A little bit. When we say words, they don't hang in the air and sustain universes that are revealed since. Exactly. Exactly. If I say, like, Mary went to the store, there isn't suddenly a real Mary who has, like, a whole complex in her life. But it's close. We're getting there. I mean, people might hear that story and... Just try saying what he says. Say, let there be light. (laughs) Okay, that's been done. (laughs) Alexa... (laughs) Let there be light. Right. So, who really speaks? Who really speaks? God speaks. And we have this this sort of subsidiary echo faculty. Yeah. So, who really has arms? Copy. <laughs> who really has arms? Who really has an arm? Who really has beards? A beard. Who really has needs? Oh, it must hurt. Ah, that's an ache. So am I supposed to hyper-empathize with God then? Am I supposed to be like, oh, poor deity, it hurts. Yes. See, Avraham served God out of love. Yitzchak served God out of fear. Yaakov served God out of compassion. That's the integration of the two. Yeah, but how do you have compassion for God? He's perfect. Okay, so let's go through this. Avram shows up and he's like, wow, the creator of all the universe made all this stuff. Ah, so that's interesting. So there's a there's a response of Chesed both towards him and an, and an emulation of Chesed in his life. So so Avraham's like giving things to God, the whole story, but he's also giving things to people because he watches how God gives things to people and he's like, I gotta emulate that. And then Yitzchak, I don't really get the whole Kavura thing with Yitzchak. I'm trying to figure it out. I think like the forbearance of allowing himself to be slaughtered, maybe. Perfection. No compromise. Where do you see that in the, in the narrative? He was not allowed to leave Israel. Abraham I mean, he, he practically didn't, but it's, it seems to be an absence of famine in the, at the time. No, 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 no. He was forbidden? What did Abraham say to Eliezer? Do not take my son. Oh. He can't leave Israel. He stays here with me. You go he find a wife for him. Yes. Okay. He or is sanctified. He, no, there's no compromise in, in Yitzhak. Why? Because that's what Gvura means. Gvura means no exceptions. Perfection. Discipline. And I assume that the source, like the, the story we should be looking at for the source of this is the Akedah, the, the binding of Isaac is where this... Once, once you are raised up on the altar, there's no going back. Mm-hmm. You are now sanctified. Kedush Kadoshim. Oh, now I get it. I always wondered why it is that on the, on the Kabbalistic tree of life, um, the, the tree, the, um, the left branch starts with, well, it has... Yitzchak on it, and then underneath it, Aaron. Because the binding of Isaac is echoed in Moses picking up Aaron and swinging him around and saying, now you belong to God. Now you can't even attend a funeral. No funerals. No funerals. Yeah, so... And the Bukharim used to be... The priests. In that, in that, and that's why you have to redeem the Bukhar. Otherwise, he's not allowed to do anything. 
outside serving God. Outside the temple service. Yeah. Okay, so... <clears throat> so I'll run what I said. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt yeah. the story. I just want to get part of it. Avram's chesed. So he sees God being kind, and he's like, okay, God's kind to me. I, I should be kind to others, and I should be kind to God. Right? So he gets that, that section of godliness, let's say. That's his, stakes out his corner. Feeds, feeds travelers. Uh, the, the archetypal moment, maybe, is he runs after these Arab wanderers that he encounters and falls on his face and begs them to accept his hospitality. Okay. Yitzchak is, is Gevor. He's the discipline of guess the discipline of, of ritual in the sense that he's he's bound physically on the altar and from then on he's bound by a set of laws which are highest standard of right highest standards but specifically a highest standard not with respect not with respect to human service but to divine service there's no there's no there's no like moral utility reason why he can't leave the land of Israel there's, okay, so there's a, there's, a cons- there's a consecration going on there? Yes. Right. And that's, that's discipline. So, so the, the discipline involves fundamentally holding, holding oneself up to that standard or being held to that standard. And then Yaakov is compassion. He has the, the perfect harmony, the, the integration of the two of them. I want to ask about this. So I get, I get like the, the I think I get the, the point you're, you're getting at, which is that he has compassion for God and compassion for man. And, the, and compassion for both stems from a recognition of, of suffering in some sense, or a recognition of need. I wanted to run this past you because this is an idea, I, I think I picked it up, I think it's a Buddhist idea that I picked up, but it seems to work, and I wanted to check that. The idea that um, to act with compassion, um, as a synthesis of kindness and severity, means that when one gives to the beggar, one is compassionate. One gives with his hand, and he also like is present with his heart. But also, when one is forced to slay, like in war, one one cuts down the enemy with the blade. And even as one cuts down the enemy, one is one feels compassion for the enemy. No, that's a samurai idea, not so much a Jewish one. You're not sure. Okay. I, I let the record start the Romanus is, is uh, making a yeah, no, no, yeah, no. <laughs> facial expression. Um, it's, a, it's a combination of severity and kindness because it's a response to, uh, to the undeservedness. You don't have compassion for a person who deserves. That's justice. Right. Okay. You have compassion for someone who has lost his privileges, does not deserve. But it's so sad that you have compassion and you treat him with kindness even though he doesn't deserve it. So a person gets himself into trouble, now he needs your compassion. If he's not in trouble, he doesn't need compassion. He needs justice. Right. Which is gvura. <laughs> so, okay, so if he's not in trouble, gvura's fine. So, so then how so, do you distinguish so kindness, that from kindness? Okay. Yeah. Chesed does not judge. Whether you deserve or not is irrelevant. It just gives. 
Whereas compassion judges, finds you wanting, and gives anyway. And Gvura judges, finds you wanting, and you don't get. Right. Okay. Interesting. Got a lot more. Got a lot more thinking to do on that. But you, you had a story. You yes, wanted I wanted to. Tell. There's a famous story of Unculus. Mm-hmm. If it's any of the ones I'm thinking of, I love this one already. They came, I, I know a few of them. They came to arrest him. Okay. He kissed the mezuzah. Yeah. And they said... Tell, tell the story in full, because I've heard it, but I listened to me not it. So he converted. Unculus was a, was a Roman, mm-hmm. related to the emperor, I think. I think he was the nephew, maybe? Nephew. And he converted, and it was against the law. Under Roman law, you don't convert to Judaism. So soldiers came to arrest him. And as they were leading him out, he tried arguing with them, theologically. Didn't help. They're leading him out, and he kisses the mezuzah. And they said, what was that? And he said, you have to stand at the emperor's door and protect him, but our king, our emperor, stands at our door and protects us. So they all converted. So they sent another group of soldiers. And the same thing happened. They said, what was that? And he said, our king stands at our door to protect us. They all converted. So they stopped trying to arrest him. Now, it sounds like a silly story. Not to me. Oh, your king stands by your... Okay, well, I'll become Jewish. I come, you know, which rabbi would convert you on those grounds? <laughs> I, I honestly did, if you caught me at the right day. <laughs> because, like, you got to look at what it says, right? What does it say? I mean, I, I assume... What, you're, what got to you? You'll come out with something more profound, but what got to me was... It's a... It's... I mean, it, at, at, at base level, it's, it's an entire discourse on leadership. It's like the, the emperor of Rome, what's his deal? His deal is he gets to tell everyone else what to do and he gets to enjoy it. That's his thing. But also he's vulnerable and everyone else's job is to protect him from his vulnerability. Fine. The position of, of the position that we have with our king, who, um, oh, oh, I, I just encountered this line in the TLM the other day. There's a, something like um, uh, Malchuto. Uh, the I can't get the, the language right. Mashal? I, I, it's something like or something. Something like a way of reading it is and all kingship is a is a an analogy for his kingship. All true, all true malchut kingship, which I guess in the in the language in Hebrew should be read as leadership, like what we might think of as leadership. So what is true kingship? It doesn't mean you get to, you sit in your, your throne and people bring you stuff. It doesn't mean you boss people around. It's like much closer to, to use the Game of Thrones analogy, I don't know if this is going to hit, but to, to how Ned Stark treats his people. It's like everyone who's, who's your subject is a person that you're responsible for. A good, good leaders are constantly running around making sure everything's okay with the people who nominally are beneath them. And how do we, how is this acted out with the mezuzah? How is this represented? It's like God is standing watch over us. He's protecting us like a doorman, which is precisely what 
an old, a good king should do. That's what it did for me. I don't know if that, that's what you were getting at. <clears throat> it, it worked because they were soldiers. Hmm. You tell a layman this. Uh, they probably had their turn standing at the emperor's door to protect him. So they knew firsthand what that was. Why do you need a guard at the door? Because people are going to come try to kill you. And what's a guard going to do? Die instead. Wow. His job is not to, his job is not to prevent an attack. His job is to take the first bullet. Four. So when they said this to the soldiers, Romans, they had many gods. Gods of every kind. They had never heard of a god who would take a bullet for you. Wow. Well, this is the, um, there's this line from King Lear. After a man's been like horribly mistreated, he says, um, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport. That's the classical theology, I guess. We're just trying to stay, stay out of their way. Huh. When the Rebbe said, check your mezuzahs, because it's like a helmet, What is the job of a helmet? Takes the first bullet. You don't reuse that helmet afterwards. That helmet is done. That helmet is a is a museum piece after it's taken a hit. Yeah. They it doesn't to... stop the war. Not at all. <laughs> and it doesn't stop the shooting. Not at all. It takes the bullet for you. And it's designed that way. I mean, I, I, I was something of a cyclist. And um, the thing I was told, which, is, which always fascinated me, was if you fall off your bike and your, your helmet gets a bump on the floor, that, that helmet's done. Oh, it looks fine? Doesn't matter. You're yeah. done with that helmet. Yeah. You get a new its helmet. Its integrity was compromised. Yeah. So you have to check your mezuzah because it took a bullet. Fantastic. That's brilliant. There's a species of, um, the, the species of, of social bird I think called the, I want to say it's the common Arabian warbler, but I'm not sure that um, their entire society is not, it's run off like, I don't know, I read, I read the way this, the, the internet source that I read it on, he called it prestige rather than dominance. He says, instead of like the big dog biting down everything else in this society, the, 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 the bird that's at the top is the one that takes the most dangerous position in all the, in, when they go, when they go foraging, he's sitting on the, on the roost and he's a target for eagles. When they wrap up for the night, everyone stand, stands on a branch to sleep and he's at the edge of the branch. He's the first one that gets taken by a snake. And they fight for that position. That's the position of leadership in Eastern in common Eastern Warblers society, common Arabian Warblers society. That's the flip. So God's like that more. Or that's like God more. So where do we see that God takes a bullet? Ooh, 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 let me, let me, let me give, give us some a minute. Where do we see that God takes a bullet? All right, I'm gonna go with, um, with an answer 
something I've been I've been reading a bit lately. I've been reading the Tome Devorah, and um, it's a like it opens with this extended meditation on the last words of, of the Book of Micha. Um, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and, and so on? And a big emphasis of it is that even when we even when God is humiliated by our sin, even when He's I don't know is this the bullet? I, uh, that's kind of internal. It's kind of like we, we do things which are like really, really um, les majest to him, like they're very insulting, but he continues to sustain us. I don't know. It's a long bow. Wh- which, what did you have in mind? Most people say the cloud of glory that absorbed the arrows. Yeah, but that, he doesn't, that's not, he doesn't not get hurt him. by that. It's not him. Right. Just the cloud of whatever, right? And if it were him, I'm pretty sure he's arrow-proof in the physical sense, at least. Okay. Um, the Saita. <gasps> nice! Because he says, better my name should be erased so that peace can come between man and wife. It's not even saving a life. No, nah, it's saving, saving a marriage. marriage. Right. So um, for, for listeners who, who aren't familiar, the, the, the brief version of this is, and the Rav will correct me if I'm wrong, that a, a woman, if a woman is um, told by her husband, warned against secluding herself with a certain man, and then she goes and secludes herself with him, then, a, um, then he is to bring her to the temple, and they go through a ritual, part of which involves um, a passage with the name of God being erased in water, and she drinks the water, and then it's a test by miracle. If she is guilty of anything, then she dies horribly. And if she's not guilty of anything, she's fine. And then she goes back home to her husband and is pure, is, is permitted to him. She is permitted to him anyway. What do you mean she's permitted to him anyway? There's no proof she did anything wrong. It's a suspicion. No, but when, hang on, on the, on the road, there's a whole discussion with Gamara on the road. Once, once oh. he makes the objection, right, then they have to separate. But what, what it's really saying is, he wants to stay married to her, but he can't get the suspicion out of his head. Right. If an angel came and said she's innocent. I don't know. I mean, I told her not. she was there. They were together. Come on. I believe you, but I still have a suspicion. Right. The only way to save this marriage is for God to testify that she's innocent. And the way that, that God testifies that he's innocent is in his name as ever. His Erase name. my name. Oh, <clears throat> that's the bullet. Yeah. Now, the question is, yeah, well, he's not really taking a bullet. He's not going to die. If you die, it's over. Yeah, he's not going to die. He's going to continue to feel the pain infinitely. I think I think it's important here to to I guess like I think I have a sense of what that means, but it's it's a it's a hard one sense. Like it's not something that um, that people often get taught. 
but there's this idea um, what uh, the Lord is one and his name is one and there's this I think as best as I can tell the, the conceptualization of that is um, you can sort of distinguish between the world of stuff where we are and there's a world of ideas or, or forms or thoughts or concepts and and God is this sort of perfect um, transcendent point between the two like the name of God is in some sense one with God himself and that's a is that I, again is this uh, theologically on point with you your findings I'm not sure I'm not sure I think the name of God means his reputation okay that's what not... we think of him right how we know him so when we make a Kiddush Hashem a sanctification of God's name that means we do something good and people say oh that Jew he did something good Good for the Jews, good for their God. That's the sanctification. And that is not yet one with him. On that day, but until then, there are two separate who things. he is and who we think he is. So we have our conception of God, and then there's God as he is, and there's a two different things. But on the day when those become one thing, that is, when we know God as he is, then the world will be perfect. So, <clears throat> you know, on Yom Kippur, uh, we read about the ten martyrs. Yeah. And everybody cries. It's very emotional. I'm, I'm already spent by Odesana Tokif. Yeah. I have nothing more to give. Ugh. So. The ten martyrs. The angels come to God crying. The horror of it. So what? the ten martyrs of ten great sages who were who were butchered by the Romans. Yes. What does God say to the angels when they come with their tears? Yeah. Um, I'm guessing, be silent. It is my will. Actually, he said, "Be silent, or I'll turn the world back to mush." Oh, really? Yeah. What's the phrasing? Do you remember the the? the Again. Ah, to Tohu, to the primordial void. I shall return the world onto void, into the primordial chaos. Yeah, mush is a good translation of Tohu. Wow. So the question is... <laughs> Gee, you got to give me a moment with that, Rob. <laughs> the question is, if human suffering or the suffering of the righteous yeah. is a mystery that God can't explain. So just say, I can't explain it. No. You stop talking, I'm going to flip the whole table over. What is this, bullying? I guess you could construe it that way. It doesn't sound like God at all. I mean, it sounds like, it sounds concordant with our earlier discussion, right? It sounds like the... Again, I, again, I go to Scott Alexander's reading of the Book of Job. In this case, it's like you you go and you complain about the suffering of. I mean, Job. Job is a similar case. Very righteous man, canonically very righteous, right? His friends are like, mm, maybe you're not so righteous. God's like, no, you're that righteous. These guys need to bring apology offerings. He's that righteous. Suffers horribly, and he goes before the whirlwind. God goes before God and and, and complains, and God speaks to him from the whirlwind and just speaks of the great majestic works at great length, who darkeneth counsels with word and little understanding. 
Um, where were you when, when I set the frames of heaven and the sons of God shouted with joy? Can you catch Leviathan with a fish hook? And he just describes beautiful, majestic things over and over for, for like chapters, just filled with it. It doesn't seem to be an answer. And the answer that I, I gathered from, from Scott Alexander's writing again is that the idea there, the fundamental idea, is that that, that, that human suffering, unearned human suffering, undeserved human suffering, is precisely the price you pay for, for this universe, for it, it, it with everything, with the, the ups and downs. So you can, you're, the trade-off is there, and you can trade out on it, but if you don't have suffering, you don't get a world. And I don't think, that, I don't think that's worthwhile. That doesn't do it for you? Again, two geometry. Not enough romance. God says to the angels, Okay. You're crying? It hurts you? Oh no, here it comes. You think this is pain? They're not your children. Oh. So God is saying, stop it. I'm 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 hurting a lot more than you are. So why the why the returning? So then the question would become, well, if it hurts you that bad, stop it. Make end the pain. It's not hard. So God says, what are you saying? Turn the world back to mush? So that's the dialogue. There are a couple of lines that are sort of implicit. They're baked in there. They go to him and they say, it hurts. He says, it hurts me too. So end it. This is, how, this is the reset button. You really think I should press this reset button? Not really what a suggestion here. No, I can't do that. No. As much as it hurts me, I cannot cancel. Which means the purpose justifies so much that no matter how much it hurts, it, I have to have this. I can't quit. <clears throat> I can't quit. Wow. Which, explains, which explains another amazing what is the story with holding the mountain over our heads? Oh, yeah. I was going to ask you about this one. Because that one is like, that's very commandy rather than um, uh, romancy. So again, for, for listeners at home, um, let's see if I get this right. Again, Rob, correct me, please. Um, it's during the giving of the Torah. At Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai. God's like, here's, I got this, I got this book. You can do all the stuff in it. We'll be buddies. This is like our, I guess, our covenantal marriage. And we're like, mm, okay, interested, but it's kind of a big ask. Maybe we're not so sure. He's like, all right, let me, let me, let me, yeah, let me clear things up a bit here. See this big mountain? Yeah. Okay, cool. Mountain comes up, mountain comes over your head. This is big enough to crush all of you. Have another think about it. You want some of this or you want the mountain? And we're like, you know what? We'll take the eternal covenant. Thanks. No mountain. He puts the mountain back down. So that's the story there. Is, is that roughly yeah. the, the correct thing? And then you have like the, the rabbinic commentary on the, on the Purim response to that, but I don't know if that's part of this tale. Like, is that, in, is that dialogue what you want or just this, the story, the mountain? Just the mountain because it seems so unnecessary. The Jews had already said twice... 
So like let let's let's put this in human terms again. So a man goes down on one knee, says, Will you marry me? Oh yes, yes, a thousand times yes. And they get to the chup and he pulls out a gun, he's like, You better marry me. And she's like, I I'm dressed in white here. We're, we're doing this already. This is weird flex, but okay. So what's the flex? What's the mountain? The mountain is God telling us something about himself. He said, I want you to do this, and we said, sure. But it gave it, it, get, it, it had the, the flavor or the impression that it's all voluntary. You want, we'll do it, we agree, we're on the same page. Right. You like us, we like you. Sure, what's a favor between friends? Right. So God says, no, 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 don't misunderstand me. This is not optional. I can't have it any other way. So why is he threatening us? Why is it a murder threat rather than a suicide threat? It's not. It's the same thing as turning the world back to mush. The, what, a mountain over our heads? A mountain, okay, if you say he enlarged Sinai until it could crush all the worlds, all the lands in the world, then you got to... That's, that's primordial mush, no? It's, it's his telling us that his need is not negotiable. He can't. He can't what? He can't take no for an answer. So it's not like, oh, you're saying yes, that's nice. No, 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 it's not nice. It's the whole deal. <laughs> In other words, this is essential. I'm not, I'm not asking you for a favor. But isn't this a violation of that same intimacy that you were describing at the top no, of the hour? No. That's, what do you mean? We are willingly giving our, of, our, of, our, of our deep selves to him. And then he's like, Whoa. but actually. Giving your deep self. Is not optional. Okay, fine, but then, but so it's forced intimacy then. Mm. It's precisely what you said not to do. It's not forced. It's absolute. Oh, it's like mathematically necessary. So we're back to geometrizing God here. I don't know where the math came in here. <laughs> you said it's absolute. I'm allergic to math. Okay, fine. We'll leave the math. <laughs> what, what What's the difference between absolute and force? What's the difference between this and a lover who says, "I can't live without you" and has a loaded gun? No, I can't live without you. Is the gun? Not following again. I can't live without you means I don't have a choice in this. Show me as a choice. I don't. Come on. You can just okay. Here are a couple of choices. One is just deal with it. Just like be in immense cosmological pain and just push through. Like he's tough enough. Come on. He's been around the block. He's created some universes before. He can take it. First, <laughs> first option. Second option. <laughs> What? Is that a metaphor? <laughs> Been around the block? <laughs> no, blocks are a metaphor for that. All right. So here's the point. The Alta Rebbe made one this great innovation in Jewish thinking. Listen, the, let's, let's not go throwing away, throwing around phrases like innovation. Discovery of what was already there. Okay. Re revelation of... <clears throat> that the purpose of creation is not what you find in Kabbalah, in Medrash. The real purpose of creation is that God desired a dwelling place in the lowest world. Taiva. Taiva. That is the real motivation for creation. Now, the word taiva can mean 
different things. On a human level, it kind of sounds frivolous. Mm. A little bit, yeah. I want, you want, he want. Yeah. Specifically, I mean, the, the Balakanya of all people, he, he goes on and on about how to... Um, curb your taiva. Curb your taiva, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's it. Like, oh, you have lusts for stuff? Yeah, not so much. I read this sign up in, in 770 today, something from the Altareva. The forbidden is forbidden, and the permitted is unnecessary. Jeez, oh, so much for like letting go of the asceticism of the past. Jeez, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. So for us, it's not so great, Saiba. On the other hand, on the other hand, even in the human condition, if you're talking about a true Taiva, it's not, not negotiable. Right. We need food, we need water, that's it. Without, we perish. Or just the desire to live, the pleasure of life. Not negotiable. It's not if you please. Uh, when you say the pleasure of life, you mean the joy of being alive itself? I mean, like we want to be alive, or like we want to enjoy life. Is no, it... Be alive. Be alive. It's like even the fetus fights to survive. Right. What does he know about life that makes him dinosaur? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be so sure. Like maybe relax a bit with the struggling. Yeah. So, no, but so what God is saying is. I created the world, obviously, nobody forced me. Right. So you may think that it's just optional. Eh, create a world, if not, you know, you'll be my people, you won't be my people. World and not world. So God is saying, no, 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 don't, don't misunderstand me. Of course nobody forced me, but an internal force is much more powerful than an external one. I am forced by nature what it means to be God, by my God nature to be creative. And not merely to be creative, but to be creative of relationships. To create you. Yes. So again, going back and wrapping all up. Please. If I only need you, not something about you. Right? You know, how how insulting, degrading. To say, I will follow the commandments, I will obey everything because I want to get to heaven. Right. Ganeden. Right, which is the way people people uh, conduct relationships. And look, look at how ugly that is. Sure. You're literally saying to God, Right. I just want to get to heaven. Right. Can you just let me into heaven? What's the price? Why does there have to be a price? Just let me into heaven, for God's sake. (laughs) I just want to get into heaven. If you could just let me in, that would be perfect. Oh, I have to keep your commandments. Fine. Just let me into heaven. In other words, do I have to put up with you? It is so insult. It is so vulgar. Mm -hmm. I have to put up with you. Just let me into heaven. That's like a man saying, I, I, I want to marry you for your money. Meaning, I just want the money. Right. But I'm afraid I'm going to have to marry you to get the money. Right. <laughs> so, Humans is insurance. Relationship is insurance. So fine, I'll marry you. But, you know, if I could get the money without marrying, that would be perfect. Fantastic. Anyway, so, Mishnah says, 
Don't serve God for the reward. That's so nasty. Because the reward is more important than God. Anyway, so... If we want to get to the heart of the issue, we have two things working for us to sum up everything we talked about. Sure. On the one hand, we're coming to the realization, what do I need this for? I don't need anything. Leave me alone. Mm -hmm. Don't create me. Don't do me no favors. Right? So I don't need to be here. I don't need any of this. On the other hand, we're coming to realize that God needs us much more than we need him. Because, you know, I need him for some details, you know, which I didn't really ask. I don't even need life. And whatever it is I do need, so what, for another 50 years, it'll be over. Mm. How long am I going to need anything? How long do I need a car? Until I can't drive. Right. So all my needs are temporary, they're artificial, they're not even mine, because I didn't ask for any of this. His need is forever, because he doesn't die. So our needs are becoming less and less significant. His need is becoming more and more obvious. This is leading us to Mashiach. Because if he really needs and I don't, then I am completely available to him. So when, when God calls to Avraham, Avraham says, Hineni. Hineni means, I got nothing to do here. I'm not busy. Totally available. Free day for me. Give me a job for Pete's sake. I got nothing to do here. I'm hoping you have a mission for me. Because to be needed, that's good. To be needy, no thanks. And what does God say to him then? What's the mission? Make the world holier, this lowest world, make it holier than heaven. Make it my personal dwelling place. You know what a personal dwelling place means? <laughs> Somewhere to put, his, put your feet out. Wow. All the world, this is footstool. We, we mistake, you know, we got this. God says, I have a desire for a dwelling place in the lowest world. And we think, oh, we can do that for you. Yeah, we'll make this world holy and you'll have your place. Okay. And God says, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, like a man saying to a woman, let's build a house. So she goes to the hardware store and gets a hammer and nails. And he says, are you out of your mind? Right. <laughs> I didn't mean carpentry. I meant, what is it? It's not a house, it's a home. So God says, I want a dwelling place in the lowest world. What, to live alone? <laughs> you misunderstood me completely. <laughs> we make that house and we leave. We're like, all right, have fun here. Break whatever you like. Wow. Okay. So we are the dwelling place. And they shall make for me a mishkan and I will dwell in them. There you go. Rest my case. Wherever you are is home. So then what, what our task is is to be what 
personally available to God? Is that the, that's it? That's so it. It's, it's an ongoing thing in the way that a relationship's an ongoing thing. God says, I am yours. We just have to say, and we're yours. And then all the practical stuff is, is essentially like ironing out the details, honoring yes. that fundamental relationship. So then if we, I mean, there have been saints here forever. There's always been a place for God here. There is always a place for God here. What, 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 what's the, what's the, the, the idea that we're building towards something? Where does that come from? We've never reached the intimacy. We always knew it's his world, he's the boss, don't mess with him. The intimacy has been missing. It's like we're engaged, we're, we're married, but we've never consummated the marriage. It's always been a little, like you say, mechanical or mathematical. You do this, he'll do that, you know, it was like... Exchange yeah. or submission rather than... Or getting to heaven and using him as your stepladder. Oh, oh, throwing out the caucus today, eh? Yeah. So now it's time that we realize that it's oneness that we're looking for. The antidote to being alone. The antidote to loneliness is unity. Woof. So is this is this a in your conception of this is this something that it's like a, a sort of cognitive flipping over of the table is this a subversion of everything you once thought is it a is it a is this a moment a spark of enlightenment or is it something you gently cultivate what's what's the process I guess it's been building from the time the Torah was given you know we worked at this relationship from different perspectives and different angles and we didn't do better at some time and worse at other times but it's it's time to get it straight and and the ingredients are all there we're tired of ourselves we're ready to transcend ourselves this emphasis on me 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 we're drowning in it it's sickening and psychology is just making it worse. So, so how do you feel? So how does that make you feel? Did that upset you? Did that the, disturb the you? The problem is the narcissistic mirror, so we add a few more mirrors to the side, yes. see if that helps. Yeah, and we know it already. Enough, right. enough. So the stage has been set. I am not interested for my purposes I am now ready to serve. Like a long time ago, the Novi said, Hinani Shlocheni. God said, Who can I send? And the Novi said, Hinani. <laughs> Look behold, at me. Behold I'm, me, your messenger. Send me. Behold me, send me. In other words, Look, I'm not doing. <laughs> I'm not doing anything here, so give me a job. Which, which prophet is this? I forget. <clears throat> That's the phrase. Behold me, send me. So Hinani literally means I'm unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but that's, that's what that means, right? Like when they, when they talk about quality time. 
It means when you look. I'm here. I'm available now. Because hine can mean now. It can mean here. It can mean me. Okay. This is going to be, I guess, a um, a big question in in the couple of minutes that we have remaining. So I don't know if you can do this on one foot, but how how sh- how ought that inform the way that we engage with people? It'll make us psychologically so healthy. Not about me. I can really hear you now. For the first time. So. The, the the way we're with the way we're conceptualizing this, I'm sp- I'm speaking with with someone. So like right now we're in dialogue, right? So God's place in this room is is am I to understand Him as being above us or is behind your eyes or both? Above meaning what spatially? Well, yeah, spatially I guess, but as you know, which is the metaphor? It makes which is, yeah, it makes more sense to say before us. Okay. Rather than above us. Sure. Before you needed, he needed. Before you needed, he needed. Okay, so is my conception here then, I guess, three in this room or two in this room? Does that make sense? Or one in this room? Am I, this drama, the way we're acting it out, yeah? Is it, is it I'm here and you're here and God's here? Or is it I'm here and God's here and, and the incarnation of God that's presenting to me is you? Or is it, I'm here as God and you're here as God? And We are here for some godly purpose. Okay. So how is he here? Yeah. The purpose of our meeting is him. Ah. So then how do I, how, then that's the, that's, the, that's, the, that's the God as verb idea. That's, the pro, that's God is in the process rather than in, what, the, in what the relation. This, what will God gain from our meeting? Like when the Rebbe gave out dollars, mm. and somebody asked him, what, what, is, what is this dollar? What is this? He said, my father-in-law told me that whenever two Jews get together, a third Jew should benefit. Oh! Jeez. Put that on a plaque. My father-in-law taught me that whenever two Jews get together, a third Jew should benefit. You know what that really brings to mind straight away? This um, is a quote from Adam Smith in his um, uh, Theory on the Wealth of Nations, the book that kicked off modern economy. He he writes, um, People of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion, but the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public. So this is it. It's the precise inversion of that. So, anytime people get together, how does God benefit from this? He's orchestrating it. What does he want? How will this serve his purpose? Make an interesting radio program. Right. And people hear this, and they realize that they're here to serve, not to be served. You may have saved their life. Amen to that. Wow. All right, Romanus Friedman, we've been here for what seems like at once a minute and a thousand years. Um, the pointy end.
uh, you have a, a new book out. It's something of a, a sequel. The you Joy say? of Intimacy. The Joy of Intimacy. And the punchline is, intimacy is a non-thing. It's two people getting together beyond all things. And that's our relationship with God. Fantastic. Wow. Absolute pleasure to have you on the show, sir. My pleasure.